Isaiah Cannon's frenetic energy in early life suggested that he might one day work to unite fractious Zionist groups into a massive foreign interest lobby in the United States. Cannon was born on March 7, 1905 in Canada. His parents were married in Portland, Maine, but moved 226 miles northeast across the border to St. Stephen, where his intrepid father acquired an insurance agency. At the beginning of a pithy end-of-career memoir, referenced often, Kennan explained that Zionist activism was at the very core of his Orthodox Jewish family's early life. We were all Zionist activists. When we moved to Toronto on April 1, 1911, my father established the first B'nai Zion Club. My sisters Anna and Esther attended the first Hadassah Convention in Rochester, New York, where they met Henrietta Zold, the founder of Hadassah. They decided to organize a Hadassah chapter in Toronto, and they invited her to our Toronto home. On November 2, I was then 12, Arthur James Balfour issued the declaration that His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective in my class at the Huron Street School. I raised my hand and asked my teacher whether I could make a short speech to the class. This is a great day in the history of the Jewish people, I said. The Jews are going to have their own state in Palestine at last, and the Bolshevik Revolution promises an end to anti-Semitism in Russia said Kennan. Isaiah Kennan's father, originally from Kiev, frequently traveled abroad for business. Kennan's account of his father's World War I dealings from neutral territory in Sweden suggests his powerful influence over Isaiah's own ethics about business, personal conduct, and even nationality. I saw a little of my father, who was often in Europe. In 1916, his brother Lippe, who had made a fortune in oil in Baku in 1890, suggested that they meet in Poland, where Lippe commissioned my father to find a Canadian steel firm to build tank cars to transport oil to the embattled Russian army. That deal was intercepted by the Bolshevik Revolution. But my father remained in Sweden to share in that country's wartime prosperity. He exploited Sweden's neutral middle ground. Germany and Russia, at war on the battlefield, were in a commercial war to buy all available merchandise, and my father prospered. Kennan also learned from his father the benefits of affiliation with religious relief and charitable organizations for lobbying and professional pursuits. Both deployed such affiliations as forms of international letters of mark and moral force multipliers for lobbying and public relations influence. When a wartime business deal with Tsarist Russia won against Kennan's father in 1918 due to the communist victory, he did not hesitate to aggressively press his case for compensation with a charitable credential. My father decided to go to Moscow, relying on his infallible powers of persuasion, his British passport, and an authorization to represent the Jewish Relief Commission. Although Kennan's father was financially ruined and kept dreaming of recovery of a million dollars from the Soviets, he was soon on the road again in Great Britain and Europe trying to rebuild his lost wartime fortune. Kennan's memories of his father's amateur human smuggling reveal consciousness of his father's somewhat ambivalent attitudes about law and international borders. My father opened up a store, the CP, 
Canadian Pacific tailoring company, and he hired Jewish peddlers to sell his merchandise. He had a little buggy, a two-seater, with a fringe on top. And from time to time, when there were too many of them, he would smuggle one of the peddlers across a bridge to Maine. After Balfour's declaration, Kennan noticed many uncles and cousins planning to make their way to Palestine, and he believed he would someday join them. Before that day arrived, he had to choose between tempting career paths as an actor, journalist, lawyer, and philosopher. Later in life, he successfully blended all four into intense activism. Kennan worked as an usher and theater property manager, and also took to the stage briefly as an actor in Toronto. He planned a study at a New York seminary, but then considered becoming a reform rabbi. Finally, he changed his mind yet again and majored in philosophy at the University of Toronto, becoming managing editor at the College Daily. Upon graduation, he landed a job at the Toronto Star in May of 1925. He made clear distinctions between straight reporting and what is now referred to as advocacy journalism. Kennan notes he was never content just to be a reporter and began to champion many causes during the Depression. A year later, Kennan took a job at the Cleveland News, where he soon began covering City Hall and Ohio politics at the State House. His persistence in getting a story won him both rebukes and a night in jail. After a baker who overcame and disarmed an assailant refused Kennan's demand for a photo to accompany his news article, Kennan surreptitiously obtained it from the baker's church. At the age of 26, he was jailed for destruction of private property when, banging his press credentials against the glass, he broke a window trying to gain admission to a political event staged in an arena. During the Depression, Kennan wrote opinion pieces opposing new sales taxes meant to address plummeting revenue. He studied law at night and was admitted to the Ohio Bar Association. In 1933, he launched his first foray into Washington lobbying when his publisher sent him to convince the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1882-1945, to pay off depositors who had lost money in Cleveland-area bank failures. Like his father, Kennan now carried his own letter of mark for guaranteed access to politicians in power, his role as a journalist providing news coverage. His press membership proved invaluable in his efforts to gain access and lobby media-hungry politicians. Within a few days of my arrival, I had established a lobby of congressmen and journalists who thought as I did. All this was new to me, but for the next six weeks, I interviewed many senators and representatives rallying support for legislation authorizing the administration to reimburse the depositors. After six weeks blending news coverage and lobbying, Kennan and his hastily assembled effort failed. But Kennan admired how players on both sides lobbied and broadcast their views through the press. He would achieve mastery over public relations, timely leaks, and effective media influence tactics over the next three decades. It should be noted that during his failed foray in Washington, Kennan was not yet even an American citizen. He was only naturalized in the U.S. Northern District of Ohio court on June 8 of 1934. But few rules governed federal lobbying until reforms were legislated a decade later. Following reporters' salary cuts, reducing his pay from $65 a week to 50 Kennan was asked by a co-worker to sign a petition for better conditions. 
Kennan scoffed at the idea that mere petitions would have any effect. Instead, he went on to establish Local Number 1 of the American Newspaper Guild in Cleveland to negotiate higher-paying labor contracts. His successes drew the attention of other leaders. Kennan remembered that a telephone call in 1940 changed his life when a longtime friend sought to tap his organizing skills for the Zionist cause. Ezra Shapiro urged him to become president of the Cleveland Zionist District, and Kennan responded with gusto. Now in his mid-30s, Kennan conducted a fledgling public relations campaign designed to motivate the U.S. to enter World War II. Foreshadowing APAC's later tactics, it was focused on highly negative opposition research he compiled into a book targeting prominent Americans who opposed U.S. involvement. It was, in the end, he noted, a wasted effort. We were hopeful that Roosevelt would intervene, but he was under heavy pressure from many non-Jews who insisted that Americans must keep out of overseas problems and take care of themselves. Why must Americans intervene in European wars? How many isolationists were there, and who are they? I thought I should do some research. I was then covering the Cleveland City Hall, but I had a long lunch hour, and I would always slip away to a nearby public library to look up the backgrounds and views of American leaders, especially those who couldn't care less about Jews. I spent many hours listing them, for I planned to write a monograph to be entitled Isolate the Isolationists. I kept this up for several days until I had secured a long list. Late one day, I started for home and I picked up copies of my two favorite magazines, The Nation and The New Republic. My son Peter was at the curb, waiting for the long ride to our home in South Euclid. I quickly thumbed through the pages of the two publications. Much to my dismay, both carried big feature stories about the isolationists. Look, Peter, I said, that's terrible. I've been scooped after many days of hard work. What do you mean, my nine-year-old cried. They have many writers and readers, and they will carry the names of many more people. No newspaper man likes to be scooped. Sadly, I threw away the pages of what was to have been my very first book. By 1943, Kennedy left the newspaper industry to work as the director of information for an organization called the American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs, AECZA, in New York. The American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs was formed in 1939 to spread Zionist ideology to the largely indifferent non-Zionist majority of American Jews. No longer personally subject to the military draft, Kennan was soon engaged in intense internecine combat within the AECZA for a harder ideological line. Kennan portrayed prominent anti-war Americans as isolationist, anti-Semitic, or when he thought justified, both. They always held me back, and thus to desist from significant action to overcome anti-Semitic isolationists. I had one major supporter, Louis Lipsky of Rochester, who was himself a veteran journalist and who always urged me to defy the moribund committee and to write history-making press releases. The Umbrella Group's core issue-framing challenge was not new, present Zionism to America as a unified movement of the Jewish people. This required combating more than apathy. 
Member Jewish opposition groups and their leaders rocked and subverted attempts to present a unified American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs message. Apathy had also undercut the American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs precursor organization. During World War I, famed jurist Louis D. Brandeis, 1856-1941, chaired a group called the Provisional Executive Committee for Zionist Affairs. This group was founded on August 30, 1914, when a group of 150 Zionist leaders met in New York City and elected Brandeis president. Movement membership blossomed from 12,000 in 1914 to 176,000 by 1919. But then momentum waned, according to author David Howard Goldberg. Internal disputes within the Zionist movement and or the active opposition or passive ambivalence of of non-Zionist American Jews scuttled the earlier efforts, he wrote. Soon, however, troubling news of Nazi repression and atrocities would energize a broad reorganization effort to unify Jewish groups under temporary emergency Zionist umbrella organizations. The American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs became more effective in silencing and marginalizing marginalizing dissident voices whose opposition seemed ever more theoretical and out of step with horrific facts coming in from the European theater. They also targeted more militant front groups with competing messages. Kennan's work, late in World War II in New York City, was atypical and more conflicted than most domestic nonprofit initiatives aiding the war effort, as well as the work of traditional Jewish relief organizations. In combating 1939 British restrictions on Jewish immigration to Palestine and land acquisition efforts, Kennan and other leaders were also clearly antagonizing a United States ally. Great Britain authored restrictions on immigration to Palestine outlined in the infamous White Paper. We Zionists agreed that our major objective was to defeat Hitler and that we must not be diverted from it. But we accepted the epigrammatic dictum of Israel's David Ben-Gurion who said, We shall fight the White Paper as if there were no war, and we shall fight the war as if there were no White Paper he wrote. As the end of the war became imminent, Kennan busily prepared for an inevitable peace conference in Germany and Austria, documenting justifications for reparations and acquiring other evidence that might be useful in making a case for Israel. He worked closely with Henry Monsky, a B'nai B'rith leader from Omaha. A core member of the task force was Louis Lipsky, 1876-1963, the super-activist former president of the Zionist Organization of America and founder of dominant Zionist fundraising organizations. The Nuremberg prosecutions of Nazi leadership were held between November 14, 1945 and October 1, 1946. Kennan attended various international conferences on behalf of the American Jewish Conference between October 12, 1945 and December 7, 1945. He again departed the United States between June 20 of 1946 and September 7, 1946, visiting the UK, France, Egypt, Palestine, and Germany, representing the American Jewish Conference. Lingering dissent and disunity did not keep Cannon and other organizers from a major bid to achieve influence over the US president, discussed later on. Soon after the creation of the State of Israel, the AEZCA, was subsumed by yet another organization, 
the American Zionist Council. Ultimately, after the U.S. Department of Justice attempted to force it to openly register as a foreign agent, the American Zionist Council morphed into the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee as the Israel lobby's push for unconditional U.S. political support and military and economic aid expanded geometrically. In many ways, Isaiah Cannon's path through life can be seen as a focused and practical implementation of the vision laid out by the founder of modern political Zionism, Theodore Herzl, 1860-1904. In hindsight, key aspects of Kennan's pursuits and actions seem modeled after Herzl himself, who, as Kennan noted, also began life as a journalist. A great number of Jews in Eastern Europe responded to the dramatic summons of Theodore Herzl, the visionary journalist who founded the modern-day Zionist movement, revolted by the infamous Dreyfus trial and the bigotry it exposed. Dreyfus, a French-Jewish army captain, was accused and falsely convicted of spying for Germany. Herzl, who was of Austro-Hungarian heritage, covered the Dreyfus affair for a newspaper. The trial energized mass rallies in Paris where many chanted, Death to the Jews! In June 1895, Herzl noted in his diary, In Paris, as I have said, I achieved a freer attitude toward anti-Semitism. Above all, I recognized the emptiness and futility of trying to combat anti-Semitism. Herzl's seminal work, The Jewish State, was translated into English and published in April 1896 making Herzl the leading spokesman for Zionism. The American Zionist Emergency Council itself published and distributed the book in 1946. Theodore Herzl financed the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, and was elected chairperson. The Congress formulated a platform called the Basel Program, as well as the charter of the World Zionist Organization, which stated... Zionism seeks for the Jewish people a publicly recognized, legally secured homeland in Palestine. Isaiah Kennan's father was the transmission belt between Herzl and Kennan, as Kennan noted in his book, All My Causes. Our family was always dedicated to Zionism. My father attended early meetings of the World Zionist Congress. He knew Herzl and other Zionist leaders. Herzl died in 1904. My father broke down and wept. I was born one year later, and people used to say that I got the message. In 1898, Herzl began a series of programs to build diplomatic support for a Jewish state in Palestine. Herzl was granted audiences with the German emperor on several occasions, as well as the Ottoman emperor in Jerusalem, who rebuffed his territorial designs on Palestine. Herzl's The Jewish State laid a very clear roadmap for Kennan's initiatives including chartering and fortifying corporate umbrella entities that diverted general Jewish relief organization influence and funding into the Zionist cause. Herzl's great plan called for two primary corporations, one for public relations and the other for colonization. Plan, simple in design but complicated in execution, will be carried out by two agencies— the Society of Jews will do the preparatory work in the domains of science and politics, which the Jewish company will afterwards apply practically. The Jewish company will be the liquidating agent of the business interest of departing Jews and will organize commerce and trade in the new country. The first corporate entity mentioned by Herzl, the Society of Jews, 
would generate an ideological doctrine and nationalist drive for sovereignty and statehood through the sovereign branding concept of the Jewish people. This drive called for an elite vanguard able to transcend the masses and internal schisms. A state is created by a nation's struggle for existence. In any struggle, it is impossible to obtain proper authority in circumstantial fashion beforehand. In fact, any previous attempt to obtain a regular decision from the majority would probably ruin the undertaking from the onset, for internal schisms would make the people defenseless against external dangers. We cannot all be of one mind. The jester will therefore simply take the leadership into his hands and march in the van. The action of the jester of the state is sufficiently warranted if the common cause is in danger and the dominus is prevented, either by want of will or by some other reason, from helping itself. But the jester becomes similar to the dominus by his intervention and is bound by the agreement quasi ex contractu. This is the legal relationship existing before, or more correctly, created simultaneously with the state. The gestor thus becomes answerable for every form of negligence, even for the failure of business undertakings and the neglect of such affairs as are intimately connected with them, etc. I shall not further enlarge on the negotiorium hestio, but rather leave it to the state, else it would take us too far from the main subject. One remark only. Business management, if it is approved by the owner, is just as effectual as if it had originally been carried on by his authority. And how does all this affect our cause? The Jewish people are at present prevented by the diaspora from conducting their political affairs themselves. Besides, they are in a condition of more or less severe distress in many parts of the world. They need, above all things, a gestor. This gestor cannot, of course, be a single individual. Such a one would either make himself ridiculous, or, seeing that he would appear to be working for his own interest, contemptible. The gestor of the Jews must therefore be a body corporate, and that is the Society of Jews, wrote Herzl. Herzl charged the society with surveying significant populations of Jews wanting to form a state as well as gathering and compiling inside and outside views from declarations of statesmen, parliaments, Jewish communities, societies, whether expressed in speeches or writings, in meetings, newspapers, or books. It was a clarion call for sustained and coordinated international lobbying, to which many responded. Herzl's second corporate entity, the Jewish company, would be in charge of the task of land acquisition and colonization, the Jewish state. Herzl wrote, The Jewish company is partly modeled on the lines of a great land acquisition company. It might be called a Jewish chartered company, though it cannot exercise sovereign power and has other purely colonial tasks. The Jewish Agency, a corporation with a U.S. subsidiary headquartered in New York that employed Isaiah Cannon, David Ben-Gurion, and many others, would later list Herzl's concept of the colonization entity as one of the forebears of its own existence. Herzl even provided a prescient glimpse of what awaited Cannon during Cannon's own ill-fated attempt at immigration to Israel in 1951. Herzl wrote, the poorest will go first to cultivate the soil. 
In accordance with the preconceived plan, they will construct roads, bridges, railways, and telegraph installations, regulate rivers, and build their own dwellings. Their labor will create trade. Trade will create markets, and markets will attract new settlers, for every man will go voluntarily at his own expense and his own risk. The immigrants standing lowest in the economic scale will be slowly followed by those of a higher grade. Those who at this moment are living in despair will go first. They will be led by the mediocre intellects which we produce so superabundantly and which are persecuted everywhere. This pamphlet will open a general discussion on the Jewish question, but that does not mean that there will be any voting on it. Such a result would ruin the cause from the onset, and dissidents must remember that allegiance or opposition is entirely voluntary. He who will not come with us should remain behind. Let all who are willing to join us fall in behind our banner and fight for our cause with voice, pen, and deed, wrote Herzl. Kennan honed his capabilities to fight for Herzl's cause in voice, pen, and deed, in the movement's leadership rather than enduring the early intense physical deprivations of state building. But Kennan was never content to let dissidents and opposition go uncontested. As he both departed for Israel and remained behind, he began his fight to overcome legal and national challenges to Israel's expanding prerogatives. 